Once Latin America's wealthiest country, the conflict has plunged Venezuela into deep economic turmoil. And the government's management of the economy has been disastrous. Conditions in Venezuela are heartbreaking. The power struggle between President Nicolas Maduro and the opposition leader Juan Guaido just keeps going Single on. largest economic collapse outside of war in at least 45 years. This is Voices of Venezuela, a new mini-series produced at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in collaboration with the Dracopoulos Ideas Lab. I'm your host, Moises Rendon, and the director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. I was born and raised in Venezuela. I left the country in 2012 to pursue better opportunities and a safer life in the United States. In each episode, we will dive into one of the many aspects of the crisis in Venezuela. We will hear from Venezuelans about what's happening on the ground and weave in analysis from experts at CSIS and beyond. We will cover a wide range of issues from water infrastructure to the lack of medicine to illegal mining. We will highlight what the U.S. and international community can do to help the voices of Venezuela. Welcome to another episode of Voices of Venezuela. So far on this podcast, we have discussed several elements of the Venezuelan crisis, including the economic crisis, water and electricity shortages, and the country's decaying health system, all of which have made life increasingly difficult for Venezuelans. This week, we're discussing violence and insecurity, which have plagued Venezuela for years and are destabilizing the rest of the region. As I saw firsthand when I was in Cúcuta, Violence and insecurity are among the most prominent push factors for Venezuelan migrants. I interviewed one man, Daber, who recalled the presence of colectivos or pro-government militias in his community. I wouldn't say colectivo. I would say subversive terrorist groups created by the Venezuelan dictatorship. Because calling them colectivos is like giving them respect when they are people who should be repudiated and disrespected by Venezuelan society and by the world. In and of itself, the creation of subversive armed groups, not just in Tachiras, I repeat, but in all of Venezuela, is massive, created by the government to intimidate and silence the voices of the common citizens of Venezuela. To unpack this issue, we're joined by Ambassador William Brownfield. Ambassador Brownfield has had a long and distinguished career in foreign service. He's a career ambassador, having served as the U.S. ambassador to Chile, Colombia, and Venezuela. Between 2011 and 2017, he served as an assistant secretary of state for the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, or INL. Ambassador Brownfield is a senior advisor here at CSIS since 2018. Thank you so much, Ambassador, for joining us. We're delighted to have you here. Sure thing, Moises, and thanks very much for inviting me. In the clip that we just heard from Daber, he talks about groups that are known as colectivos. Colectivos are essentially pro-government paramilitary groups that serve as an unofficial parallel security force. Some colectivos originated in the 1960s as leftist urban groups. However, today's groups were mostly formed during the presidency of Hugo Chavez, who encouraged and even subsidized them as the armed wing of the Bolivarian Revolution. Ambassador Bramfield, can you walk us through the history of these colectivos and how and why did they emerge? Sure, Moises. Let me give you a little bit of history and then a little bit of my own personal experience from my years in Venezuela as the U.S. ambassador. 
as you noted in your earlier comments, I think the colectivos actually started in some way historically as a replacement for police and law enforcement in communities, largely urban, but some rural, uh, where the police had either ceased to exist or had become so highly corrupted that they were not protecting their communities. As we moved into this century, the 21st century, then President Hugo Chavez Frias discovered and concluded that the colectivos, particularly in the large cities, would be helpful for him as a control mechanism, which is to say control uh, the communities that were essential to him as part of his base, and also as some kind of quick reaction force, which is to say a, a group of motorized, usually on small motorbikes, and armed individuals that could be sent to hotspots or to any place where he wanted to make a statement. They were overwhelmingly urban at first, but as the past decade, 2000 to 2010, uh, developed, they became uh, present increasingly in rural areas as well. In 2004, when I arrived, Moises, I was not personally familiar with the colectivos, and I really didn't bump into them for my first year. But beginning in 2005, I noticed that whenever I was at a public event that for whatever reason did not seem to please uh, the government of Mr. Chavez and his ministers, armed groups would suddenly appear and would both intimidate the audience and their obvious objective was to drive me away from wherever I might be. It could be at a, at a youth orchestra event. It could be, as it frequently was, in baseball fields where we were donating equipment or in other ways trying to connect with the community. And as we moved into 2006, during my hottest period, where in a period of only two weeks, uh, I was run off by the, the colectivos eight straight times, wow. it became clear to me that, one, I was seeing the same people uh, and two, uh, they seem to be tracking me based upon my public appearances. That's when I became aware of the colectivos as a political weapon, as well as conceivably some sort of law enforcement weapon. And may I suggest to you now, 15 years yeah. later, my own assessment is the colectivos share four fundamental elements. First, they are officially unofficial which is to say they are not a government institution. Second, they are all armed and frequently very well armed. Third, they are loyal and at times fanatically loyal to the regime. And fourth, and perhaps most important, they are unaccountable. There is no process by which the colectivos are held accountable for whatever they may do in their operation. That was great, Ambassador. Thank you. Now, many of the Venezuelan migrants I talked to experienced violence collectivos firsthand, too, as well as you did in your time in Venezuela. Javier, for example, talked about his experience in Maracay. I lived in Maracay, in an area called Turmero, and many people from Guayabita, those places had so many collectivos there. I lived in a neighborhood, and they would come down and rob us, attack us there in the neighborhood. Now, but not everybody had the same perspective. For example, I interviewed a man named Joan who said that the colectivos provided security for his community in the absence of police. 
Well, where I live, there are colectivos, but they don't do anything to you unless you're doing something. They deal with those who are doing bad things, who are stealing and stuff. And so practically the colectivos there in Valencia are the police, because the police officers don't do anything. They aren't aware of anything. Instead, the colectivos help the neighborhood. If you don't have something, they'll get it and give it to you. So this is partially a problem of institutional capacity. Colectivos have filled a power vacuum left behind by the state. According to one estimate, they may control 10% of Venezuelan's towns and cities, at times managing food distribution systems. Ambassador, what exactly is the role of these groups playing Venezuela? What is the current relationship with the Maduro regime? How are colectivos being financed today? Moises, if you'd allow me to use a metaphor, I would suggest to you that Mr. Maduro's control and ability to dominate the political community uh, and the elements of power in Venezuela is like a four-legged stool. And the stool sits on these four legs. The first leg, uh, and far and away the largest, are the Venezuelan armed and security forces, the Army, Navy, Air Force, the Guardia Nacional. They are very large, they are well-armed, but From Mr. Maduro's perspective, they are perhaps not as reliable and certain as he wishes they might be. The second leg of the stool are the Cubans, and this is the Cuban military and security personnel and the Cuban intelligence personnel, thousands of them, as we know, who provide direct support and, in fact, are integrated into the Venezuelan armed and security forces. Now, they are extremely reliable. But the problem Mr. Maduro has, of course, is that ultimately they do not take their orders from Caracas, they take their orders from Havana. Mm -hmm. The third leg of the stool, and I don't want to understate this, is the Colombian guerrilla organizations, the FARC and the ELN. And in Western Venezuela, particularly in rural areas, the FARC and the ELN are in fact a major security enhancer and enforcer or the government of Mr. Maduro and his senior government officials. The problem there, of course, is first, they are intensely resented by the local Venezuelan population. And second, of course, they are Colombian and we are talking about uh, Venezuela. So the fourth leg are the colectivos. And the colectivos are 100% Venezuelan and in fact are very loyal to the regime. And as I mentioned before, and as you mentioned as well, uh, they have evolved from being very much an urban organization to move into rural areas and the smaller towns. Four legs, one of which is the leg of the colectivos. And what is their relationship to Nicolás Maduro? First, they are quite loyal and they will take orders directly from the government or the regime of Nicolás Maduro. Now, it will normally come to them through local Chavista leadership uh, representatives and officials. But at the end of the day, assuming that that chain of command is operating, they are taking their orders from Nicolás Maduro. The problem, of course, that Don Nicolás has is that from time to time, which is to say with great frequency, they also freelance which is to say they don't just sit around uh, for 23 hours a day waiting to receive orders to do something. If they do not have orders, they will be out making their own money 
or addressing old grievances or seeking revenge for a perceived slight on their own and not necessarily at the direction of the regime of Nicolás Maduro. May I kind of mention, as I wrap up my thoughts on this, there is, in my opinion, no solution to the security and crime crises of Venezuela that does not include a solution to the problem of the colectivos. That is so important to understand, Ambassador. Thank you for highlighting that. That, that would be one of the key steps when we see a transition in Venezuela, how to deal with collectivos and paramilitary groups. But now, shifting years, let's talk about the role of drug trafficking in Venezuela. I mean, as, as we mentioned, you were the U.S. ambassador to Venezuela in 2005. And when Chavez forced out the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA, That happened again 50 years ago. But now, 15 years later, the U.S. Department of Justice have revealed indictments against Maduro and 14 other current and former officials. These officials have been charged with drug trafficking, among other crimes. According to the DOJ, since the early Chavez years, the Venezuelan government has been conspiring with the FARC to traffic cocaine. Ambassador, from your perspective, What does this partnership between the FARC and the Maduro regime look like? To what extent has Venezuela been infiltrated at, at the institutional level? And has drug trafficking increased since you served in Venezuela? Yeah. Let me start with the last question first, because that's the easiest. Sure. As the world moved into the 21st century, around the year 2000, our calculation in Washington and at the United States Embassy in Caracas was that somewhere between two and five metric tons of Colombian-produced cocaine transited Venezuela on its way to market every year, three to five metric tons at most. By the time I left, after my three years as ambassador in Caracas, when I left in 2007, that was only seven years after this first figure came out, we were estimating that 20 to 30 metric tons, which is to say an increase of 500 to 800% wow. in a period of about seven years. By 2011, when I became the Assistant Secretary of State for Drugs and Law Enforcement, we were calculating that more than 200 metric tons of Colombian-produced cocaine transited Venezuela en route to market. So if you're with me, in a period of 11 years, the amount moved from three to five metric tons to more than 200 metric tons, an increase of about 60 degrees, whatever that would be, 6,000%, I suppose, right. in a period of only 11 years. That gives you a sense of how much drug trafficking through Venezuela has increased. Now, back to what made this possible, which is the partnership between the FARC and initially the Chavez regime, and since 2013, the Maduro regime, I would suggest to you, uh, Moises, that for reasons that were Colombia-based, the FARC converted into a drug trafficking organization by the 1990s, even before 
Don Hugo Chavez Frias became president of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. And the FARC latched onto drug trafficking as a major funding opportunity for them. Previously, they funded themselves through bank robberies and through hostage taking, and neither one of those were particularly popular. Drug trafficking, on the other hand, did not have such a negative connotation, particularly in the rural zones where they had their presence. As Mr. Chavez came to office and came to power, he initially looked to the FARC uh, as a means to work his ideological objective, his revolutionary objective. And here, right across the border, was a well-armed and, in fact, quite militarily proficient guerrilla organization that was engaged in its own revolutionary struggle. So initially, the relationship between Chavez and the FARC was one of political support. But as it developed, Mr. Chavez concluded and realized that, in fact, the FARC could play a very helpful role, first in terms of moving a product that he thought would be dangerous to his adversary, the United States of America, without him actually running any risk for its arrival in the United States. And over time, it became a means for him to have greater control in areas, particularly in Western Venezuela, due to enormous FARC presence. So today, the relationship between the Maduro regime and the FARC is a relationship that drives both drug trafficking, larger transnational organized crime, and overall security support for the Maduro regime particularly in Western Venezuela and in the Andean states. It has become, if you will, an agreement with the devil, or perhaps I would say between two devils, <laughs> and the ultimate victims, of course, are the people of Venezuela. Yes, yes, unfortunately. But now, Ambassador, we only have talked about FARC so far. What about the ELN? As you know, the ELN has used Venezuela as a safe haven. It's also increasing its presence in the country. The group plays a critical role on the, in the legal mining crisis in the south of the country. Do you see any difference between the relationship between the ELN and the Maduro regime in comparison with the FARC? Yeah, Moises, in Colombia, the ELN has always been seen as kind of the little brother uh, to the FARC. <laughs> I'm sure that caused them tremendous annoyance and frustration, if not anger at times, but I never lost any sleep worrying that I was somehow offending the ELN. Even at its height, at the height of both organizations, shall we say, the, the FARC and the ELN, the ELN was never bigger than maybe 15% the size of the FARC. They had influence in a much smaller amount of territory. Right. They have acquired somewhat greater uh, significance and importance now because, of course, the FARC, at least the institutional FARC, those elements that accepted and responded to direction from the, the FARC's national leadership has signed a peace accord with the government of Colombia. The ELN has not. So to that extent, the ELN has much greater uh, significance today uh, than they did before the signing of the peace accord. The ELN, like the dissident units of the FARC, which by the way, today I would estimate constitutes nearly 50% of the old FARC, now constitute dissident units, all of whom are headquartered in and based in Venezuelan territory. The ELN 
is also permanently based and headquartered in Venezuelan territory. Yeah. It also receives protection from the Maduro regime, and it plays to a considerable extent the same role as the FARC both did and does in Venezuela today. They facilitate drug trafficking, which produces revenues for some elements of the Venezuelan government, presumably those that are in the pipeline as the product moved from Colombia through Venezuela and on to market, whether in North America, Western Europe, or conceivably uh, Eastern Asia. They also provide security for the Maduro regime uh, and the local governments that are Chavista-controlled uh, the same way that the larger FARC dissident units do. So I look upon the ELN as basically as a junior version of the FARC in terms of their role in Venezuela. Now, as we discussed, colectivos, FARC, ELN are putting Venezuelans in extreme danger. Government security forces, which we will be talking about in a later episode, are often complicit and have carried out thousands of extrajudicially killings. All of this violence and insecurity is threatening the stability of the region. Colombia, as we have discussed, may see its peace agreement jeopardized as the ELN and FARC dissidents regroup and gain strength in Venezuela. Now, Ambassador, can you elaborate on the security implications for a, such an important country for the U.S. and the region like Colombia? And what about the rest of the region? Colombia first. Uh, and Moises, I, I, I think you've, you've said it correctly. From the Colombian's perspective, not just government, but from the Colombian people's perspective, the ability of the FARC and the ELN to receive support from uh, the Venezuelan regime is a matter of national security. Yes. Not local, not regional, but national security. First, It allows the dissident FARC units, as well as the entire ELN, to fund themselves, both through the means by which uh, they traffic in the Colombian drug product. And to this day, I think we should regard both the dissident FARC and the ELN as one of the world's largest drug trafficking organizations. As a result of the funding, they're able to arm themselves on the black market, the international black market, both with weapons and munitions, as well as other supplies they need uh, to conduct operations in Colombia. They have a secure base, or bases, as we both know, but we're now talking about dozens of well-known bases, at least to the local Venezuelan population, spread up and down the western Venezuelan states, Zulia and the three Andean states, as well as Barinas, and increasingly further to the, to the east and the south. They have secure bases there because obviously they are untouchable uh, by the Colombian armed or police forces. They have a location where their command structure can operate uh, without fear of being attacked. They have locations where they can give rest and recuperation, R&R, to their operational guerrillas uh, as they come back into Venezuela from Colombia. And uh, the ultimate threat, I suggest, particularly as relates uh, to the FARC, is that this permanent presence of dissident units in Venezuela, it's a magnet that draws to them 
any of the demobilized FARC in Colombia yes. who become frustrated or irritated or for whatever reason, perhaps they want to make more money in the good old-fashioned yes. way. <laughs> and they are a constant invitation to them to cross into Venezuela and rejoin the armed FARC units that base in Venezuela but conduct their guerrilla or, if I might use the word, terrorist and narco-trafficking operations in Colombia. That's the Colombias. Yes. More broadly in all of Latin America, I mean, geography speaks, and obviously the farther away you get uh, from Venezuela itself, the less impact right. its support it is going to have. We do hear, particularly from Brazilian border towns, increasing concern about what they define as Venezuelan organized crime that is coming into their border communities. I don't think it's anywhere near the degree of impact uh, that you see Venezuela support for the FARC and ELN having in Colombia, but it is still there. And in the old days, which you undoubtedly recall, when Don Hugo Chavez Frias was the president of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. He had a much larger amount of money and revenue and assets to work with. Yeah. Those were the good old days for PDVSA when oil was selling for $160 or $170 a barrel. And he did, in fact, provide a substantial amount of financial as well as political support to guerrilla-type organizations and movements in the region. Not so much now, Moises. I mean, money talks. And right now, one thing that Mr. Maduro does not have in any degree is money. So as a consequence, I think the big story is Colombia. A much smaller story, but potentially a story that could grow is should the Venezuelan economy ever return to the level it was even 10 years ago, uh, there is a danger that the same structure, the same infrastructure and network that Chavez set up early in the 2000s could be reacted. Fair enough, Ambassador. Thank you. Now, early in this episode, we heard from Joan, who told us that colectivos play an ambiguous role in his community. Oftentimes, they act as police and provide services that the government did not. As it turns out, Joan's brothers was a colectivo, and he was killed in a confrontation. This is what Joan had to say about it. Well, he was the type of person who took care of the neighborhood. He didn't like when they went in and robbed other people's houses, because he was robbed a lot. So for that reason, there are people who say that if you're a thug, it's because you want to be one. But it's not like that, because there are certain necessities that one has there, and necessity is rife with sin, you know? Listening to Joanne reminds me how difficult it would be to deal with the violence and insecurity crisis in Venezuela. In many parts of the country, criminal groups are both feared and revered. They perpetrate extremely violent crimes, and yet people go to them for help, often viewing them as extension or replacement of the state, as we have discussed. Now, Ambassador Branfield, let's talk about a day-after scenario. How will a day-after government root out criminal groups and rebuild state capacity in a country where the rule of law is obsolete? How do you combat violent crime? Well, building trust with people like Joanne. And what is the role of the international community in all of this? What, what will Colombia, Brazil, the U.S. and other allies need to do to support a day after government in its efforts, not to curtail the security threats 
and halt illicit economies? Yeah, Moises, those two questions constitute one of the two or three most important elements of a day after stretch, along with the economic element and along with the political element. There is unquestionably the security and law enforcement element. May I suggest there are a couple of models out that we've looked at over the last 20 years and, and experimented with in terms of how to do this. And to a certain extent, which model you use depends upon what has happened to get us to the day after. Is it an agreed and negotiated process which gets us to the day after, or is it an uprising or, in some ways even worse, a complete collapse? It's hard to imagine a greater collapse than we already see in Venezuela, but a conceivably complete collapse where absolutely nothing is working. Now, the first problem is how to weed out the corrupt, criminal, and basically hopeless causes that are now embedded after 21 years of Chavismo rule are, are now embedded in every single police, security, armed forces, institution, prosecutors, courts, correction systems, everyone is completely penetrated by these elements. And how do you get them out, which is the first step. Mm -hmm. And the two ideas that we worked with when I was running uh, the Drugs and Law Enforcement Bureau of the State Department, one was clean house, which is to say, take the institution and everyone is, is, uh, is terminated. At the end of the day, you can say to them, you may now reapply for your job, but you're going to be competing now with with anyone else who might have an interest in joining the police, in joining the Army, Navy, or Air Force. And this has worked, at least one example I can point to, which was Ukraine about eight years ago, where they basically took the entire Ukrainian National Police Force, the new government that came in, and said, basically, you're all fired. And within 90 days, they had, they had begun to stand up a new police force, which included some of the old police. But overwhelmingly, there were new people who had no connection whatsoever to the old institution that became the new national police of Ukraine. It worked in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always work. That was also what the, it was the international group, but largely driven by the United States government. We did it in Iraq in 2000. Or, I guess, late 2003, early 2004, where all the Ba'athists of Saddam Hussein's uh, previous government were, were also canned. And there was not then an alternative to bring in and replace them. So you have to take a look at those two models and determine how you do it. Who's going to make that determination? Thank you for asking, Moises. Obviously, that has to be the interim transitional constitutional government supported, perhaps, Uh, by the diaspora from overseas, and by those who have remained true to basic fundamental principles of democracy inside Venezuela, and the tiny number of institutions uh, that have survived as independent players in Venezuela. I can really only name one, but at the end of the day, they are the ones who must determine how they are going to restructure their institutions. They are the ones who then have to determine who are they going to remove and what is the plan for replacing or reforming or restructuring those institutions. And I have done this a number of times, and the plan must include four basic elements. Mm -hmm. 
first, how you recruit your new members. What is the process? What are the standards? How much education, how little education? Are they going to be offered a one-year contract or is it a profession for life? These are fundamental questions that the next government has to think about now so they don't have to make it up on the fly. Second, how do you train your new institutions? Are you going to be in a rush? Are you going to give them a two-week wonder course and then put them out on the streets? Yeah. Are you somehow desperately going to try to hang on until they have gotten six months of training so that they can be a competent force? Or do you bleed some out to provide a presence, at least for now, while others are training up and, and then pull back those that went out earlier to be trained up? These are fundamental questions that have to be answered now. Third, leadership. Boy, there can't be anything more important for the first year or two than the leadership of these organizations. And you've got to pick those leaders carefully. Yeah. And I cannot tell you exactly what is the formula for picking the right leader, although I can tell you pretty quickly if a leader is, in fact, not the right person for the job. And fourth and finally, accountability. What is the accountability process that you will put in place? Because I can assure you, if the new government does not have in place immediately a system to hold its police, security, and armed forces accountable for their acts, it will eventually invite others, even who had not planned to be corrupt or criminal players, uh, to move in that direction when they sense that they will not be held accountable for their actions. That is what I would suggest the new government should be thinking about even now. Meanwhile, as you correctly note, how about the international community? What in the world are they going to be doing? Yes. And I have to tell you, Moises, what I would not have said 10 years ago, but I do genuinely believe now, I do not believe the transition is going to be successful without an international security presence on the ground for a period of time, yes. for as short a period of time as possible, but it will be unfair. You'll be setting them up for failure if you give the new institutions, the new police and Guardia Nacional, uh, the new armed forces, no time whatsoever to do a systematic recruitment and training and accountability process and say, uh, the government collapsed on Tuesday, on Wednesday, you guys are on the yeah. street and help respond. No, they need help. And as soon as they're seen to fail, as soon as the people say, they're not giving us any security, but we're still being mugged on the streets of Caracas or Maracaibo or Maracay or wherever it may be, then they will lose the support of the people immediately. There will have to be some international presence. Ideally, they should be police-type presence. And we've done this in the past. As long ago as 30 years ago, the OAS deployed international police monitors to Haiti. And while they were called monitors, for several months, while the Haitians were training up their next set of police, uh, they were, in fact, the local police. And in ways, it's been done in a number of other countries. They can be under United Nations control. They can be under, if not OAS, then at least Rio Treaty control. In other words, important that an international organization be and be seen to be 
the controlling mechanism, but somebody who has an organized and armed and disciplined international presence will probably have to be on the ground very, very quickly. And what will they eventually evolve into? They will not only be those responsible for security and law enforcement in the immediate aftermath of the collapse, they will also become the mechanism for training, equipping, and assisting the new uh, police and security forces as they come online following recruitment and training. The objective, Moises, uh, will be to get the international element out as quickly as possible. Venezuela's problems, crises, and tragedy are for Venezuelans to resolve and address through a Venezuelan government elected by the Venezuelan people under the Venezuelan constitution. And if the international presence can be gone in a matter of 60 days, no one will be happier than me. If they are there for several months, we probably have to accept it. But when people start arguing for keeping the international presence there, that's when you and I and millions of other people have to say no. International presence cannot be a substitute for the Venezuelan institutions operating under Venezuelan law and a Venezuelan government. That's my view. How much will it cost? Billions. Yes. Uh, and the international community better start thinking about that as well. That's the great gift that Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro have left not just the Venezuelan people, but the entire international community. And that is a tragedy that will cost a phenomenal amount in resources in order to repair uh, and fix. Embajador, this has been a very insightful, helpful conversation. I really appreciate it. I think our audience will really find it very helpful as well. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your experience, and hearing you. It seems you care about Venezuela and you care about the future of the region and the U.S. and the international community should be paying attention. Thank you. Gracias de nuevo, embajador, por tener en esta conversación. Thank you, Moises. Gracias a todos y saludos a todos también. Voices of Venezuela is produced in collaboration with the Trocapolis Ideas Lab at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Special thanks to Jumi Araki, Julia Kim, Bree Silly, who contributed to the production of this podcast, and to Maria Despradel, Claudia Fernandez, and Linnea Sandin for providing research support. Thank you for listening today. We will be here next week with a new episode of Voices of Venezuela. Thank you.